The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Today, we go back to the beginnings of lost cause romanticism, before gods and generals, before the Sons of Confederate Veterans, before Douglas Adolf Freeman, before even the United Daughters of the Confederacy or Jubal Early in the Southern Historical Society. We look at the very first organizations to construct and then preserve the memory of the Confederacy as a noble cause. These were the Ladies' Memorial Associations of the South, described in the book Burying the Dead But Not the Past, Ladies' Memorial Associations and the Lost Cause by Caroline Janey. Join us for a conversation with Dr. Janey today on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Answer the President's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a Senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a Friday at the end of October 2009, the day before Halloween, a suitably gray day here in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University. But, as always, not speaking for the university, nor will our guest today speak for her institution. We're always looking out for ourselves here on Civil War Talk Radio. The, uh, uh, the, the Halloween approach of tomorrow has the campus uh, in its usual state. Uh, apparently, Halloween is a, a big deal among uh, college-age students uh, here in Greenville. It's a big deal. Everyone goes downtown, such as it is, and, and causes unrest uh, and wears costumes and drinks alcohol. Uh, the same thing happens at Chapel Hill, about uh, 90 miles from here. Uh, they get thousands of people for their Halloween uh, celebrations. So we're seeing all kinds of memos today telling us uh, not to leave state vehicles anywhere near where the students might be, uh, a sort of run-for-the-hills approach as the uh, the party uh, uh, approaches us. And we're still, of course, will be next Thursday when Virginia Tech comes to Greenville for a Thursday night football game. Uh, we're shutting down all academic operations at 3 o'clock, so uh, the faculty cars can be moved and the boosters' cars can be parked appropriately close to the stadium. Uh, 
I see nothing wrong with this on a once a year or less basis. Uh, in principle, the privileging of athletics above academics is, of course, not appropriate to any kind of uh, academic institution. But, uh, but hey, uh, the Pirate Nation rules. Uh, the, the Pirates are having a good season, and uh, we, we could conceivably be, beat Virginia Tech, and then that would make it all okay. So that's what's going on on campus this week for those who are curious. Um, here at Civil War Talk Radio, thank you, as always, for those who have sent in uh, contributions to the book fund with which uh, new books are added to my library. These are Civil War books, not just, just any books, although theoretically I could do anything with the money, so don't don't declare it on your taxes if you do send a donation. Uh, it would go, if you sent it, to civilwartr at aol.com, uh, and I'd be happy to send you a copy of uh, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln, or perhaps a copy of All for the Regiment, The Army of the Ohio, uh, 1861 to 62. If you're curious to read either of those, be happy to send you a copy should you decide to donate some funds to uh, the book fund here at Civil War Talk Radio. And whether you send money or not, please feel free to send guest suggestions. Uh, uh, today's guest is one whose name came to me through the uh, through this venue. Uh, people emailing in or uh, otherwise sending in ideas for people who ought to be on the show. And uh, that coincided with the fact that I had just uh, found this particular book here at uh, the library on campus at East Carolina and thought it would be a good subject for a show. So everything comes nicely together. And that brings us uh, to today's guest, uh, Professor Caroline Janey from Purdue University. Uh, Professor Janey, are you there? I am. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Am I saying your last name correctly? Is it Janie? You are. Janie? No, it, it's a long A. It probably should be a short A. Most places in Virginia, it's a short A. But for whatever reason, my family has uh, the long A pronunciation. Okay. And uh, I'd like to go uh, for convenience by first names on the show and urge you to call me Jerry. Do you do you go by uh, Caroline or uh, actually Carrie? Please call Carrie. me Carrie. Yes. My my oldest daughter is named Caroline, and uh, she's very particular. It's not Carolyn. Oh, Carrie. exactly. I, I agree with that one. So, so Carrie, it is. Well, well, thank you for being on the show. Now, you're at Purdue University, is that right? I am. That's correct. Uh, I, uh, we, we talked briefly uh, when setting up the show, and, and uh, I think I mentioned to you at the time, I, I spent a number of years at the uh, much uh, lamented now Lincoln Museum in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And that means, uh, so are, are you native to Indiana? I'm not. I'm a Virginian. Ah, so that, that uh, ties in with the subject of the book, certainly. Absolutely. Uh, what, what do you think of uh, the Hoosier State? Well, it's, it's uh, been very good to, to me so far. This is uh, my fourth year here at Purdue, and I have to admit two things. One is that the, the winters are much colder and much windier than I care for. <laughs> And I also desperately miss the mountains. I miss the Blue Ridge Mountains. But other than that, Indiana has been a, a great place to be and produce uh, a wonderful university. I have a terrific department. Very happy to be here. Well, P Purdue is, is a great university. I'm a Big Ten man myself, uh, a Michigan uh, uh, alum, and grew up in Michigan. So uh, I agree it's certainly flat there. Uh, it, uh, it, North, it is. Northern it's... Indiana is flat as a pool table. And that wind just rips through. 
It does. It starts right. miles away and builds. Now, as a as a Michigan person, uh, you and I were talking about the time zone issue. Indiana, for right. many years, had a problem recognizing daylight savings time. Uh, but we used to say in Michigan, don't forget when you cross the border to set your watch back 40 years. <laughs> That's uh, good. I like that. So uh, you can That's use good. that. Uh, uh, I can use that now that I don't live there anymore. I can say it on the air. Well, uh, you teach Civil War classes at uh, Purdue? I do. I teach um, a Civil War memory class. So primarily looking at the way in which the war has been remembered from 1865 to the present. So using films and novels and looking at monuments and, of course, the organizations such as the Ladies' Memorial Associations, the Sons of Confederate Veterans, groups like that. Let's, well, let's, go ahead. I'd say, well, that is the, has been for a number of, of years now the, uh, the hot topic. Maybe it's cooled off some, but, but still uh, uh, memory is, is, is a way, uh, has been a source of a lot of uh, material. Gary Gallagher uh, had a very colorful book on, on Civil War films. Right. Uh, and, and you worked with him. Uh, I did, yes. In graduate school. Did, did that influence your, your thinking about uh, Civil War memory? Gallagher or, or his book or, well, you, or all of the above? You, all of the above. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, his. I have always admired him as a Civil War historian, and our interests very much um, came together. I actually went to the University of Virginia undergrad as well, but did not have the opportunity to take any of his courses. He uh, arrived there from Penn State just as I was finishing up, and I was actually a government major anyway, undergrad, but had come to the idea that I wanted to look at these ladies' associations out of undergrad, and so it, it worked perfectly. Um, his interest and mine certainly uh, aligned in that fashion beautifully. It, were you interested in the Civil War before college? Oh, goodness, yes. Growing up in Virginia, especially in the Shenandoah Valley, it's hard not to be interested in the Civil War, I think. Um, my grandparents, especially my grandfather, who had been a World War II vet, would take me to battlefields as a as a kid. I remember going to Antietam and Gettysburg and, and all of the the Virginia battlefields as well and, and my grandfather would simply walk the battlefields. He never talked about his own war experience but but that was, was his thing and, and went certainly to, to reenactments growing up and to all the museums. So it was it was everywhere. It was hard not to be interested. Well that that's it's good to hear that it uh, it took then uh, in your case. Uh uh, having that kind of experience. Two weeks ago, we had uh, Ted Alexander, the historian at Antietam, on, and he talked about growing up there, and I told stories I won't repeat for the, the listeners who've heard it of my own initiation in Civil War history by visiting Antietam when I was 10 years old. And uh, there is something about battlefields, about being on the site. That, oh, absolutely. Uh, Just so evocative and you know, being on that field and... and and I had an interest from a very young age in watching, trying to understand how the um, troops maneuvered on the field. I remember in you know, 11th grade history, we, we were able to pick any sort of project that we wanted to demonstrate. And I showed up with my maps of the Antietam battlefield and trying to get my classmates to have the passion uh, for it that I did was not all that successful, but, but it, it's always been there. Now, we're, we'll talk uh, in, in terms of the Ladies' Memorial Associations, associations certainly about issues of, of gender and, and gender roles in the 19th century, but uh, your, your 11th grade experience brings up the fact that I, I have theorized but cannot prove that 80% of the listeners to this show 
resemble me in being white, male, over 50, with a beard, slightly overweight, um, and long-time interest in the Civil War. Uh-huh. Uh, is that stereotype accurate uh, in your experience? And if so, why, why is that so? Well, there, there do tend to be. Um, there's an overwhelming interest, I think, among men or, or men are predominant among people who are interested in the Civil War, but I don't think that by any stretch that um, younger people or, or women are not interested. I find that my students are certainly equally interested uh, among both, both men and women. And when, I mean, I like to look around the battlefields when I go to, to Gettysburg and other places, and it, it seems to be fairly well represented among women, too. Now, you mentioned your students, and I taught, I, I teach a Civil War course here at East Carolina and had taught a similar one in Fort Wayne as an adjunct at uh, IPFW when I was uh, working in the museum there. Uh, and I certainly noticed the difference when I moved from Indiana to North Carolina teaching the Civil War in terms of the students and their preconceptions. Going from Virginia to Indiana, did you encounter different perceptions of of, of, of that history? In some ways, yes. In, in some ways, I think the Civil War is much more present in Virginia, and their uh, students are more familiar with battles and with names of leaders, both Union and Confederate. They seem to have more of a sense of where places are. That's probably what struck me the most, that students here are interested in the war when they have the opportunity to take classes and to read about it. And even in other classes, I teach, for example, the first half of U.S. women's history, which mm-hmm. goes from 1600 to 1870. And my students, like myself, want to rush to get to the Civil War once we hit the 19th century. And I find, though, that they don't have a sense of the, the places and the people as much as my students in Virginia did. And many of them don't have even those genealogical connections mm-hmm. of knowing that they had ancestors that fought. And more than likely, many of them did, but they simply don't have that personal and intimate connection on the same level. Uh, that I'd say the same thing is certainly true in North Carolina here, that there, there is a deeper personal connection, uh, 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 a more emotional reaction sometimes, visceral reaction to, right. uh, to what we, we talk about in class. Well, much of that traces back to, to what you've written about, which is how the... South has remembered its war, and that begins, uh, according to your very interesting book, with these ladies' memorial associations uh, immediately after the war, or actually during the war. Uh, The the perception a lot of people have is that that women in the South support the war by sewing socks or, uh, you know, donating uh, uh, to the cause, but they're not particularly political. Uh, it, it seems your your evidence would, would argue otherwise. Right, and they certainly did those things. They were part of soldiers' aid societies and um, nursed either in hospitals or in their homes if they were near battlefields. So they were certainly doing those things, but what makes their work in many ways political, and I'm not arguing that these women thought about their work as political. They would not have sat down and and written in their diaries that what they were doing was a political act, but their devotion to the Confederate nation. And so northern women are equally as political in some of their acts, the the same sorts of things that they're doing. But these Confederate women absolutely have a faith 
in their Confederate cause that many of us find hard to believe from you know, the 21st century perspective of how in the world could you believe in something, either if you question their, the, the causes for which the Confederacy fought or simply looking at the outcome and knowing, as we do, that it ends in April of 1865. But they tenaciously hold on to that Confederate nationalism, and they continue to do so after the war, even when the Confederate government is gone, even when Lee and Johnston have dissolved their armies. These women are very, very determined that their identity as Confederates remains. Now, this is somewhat contradictory to what others have written. Uh, Drew Faust and others have right. argued that, that, that women's nationalism, loyalty to the cause, uh, faded over time. But that's right. not what you found. No. I, and I, part of what I believe is going on there is war weariness does not mean that people aren't devoted to their cause any longer. Just because people were tired of the war, tired of um, not having their menfolk at home, tired of, of all the uh, complications that come with war, Northerners felt the same way in many instances. They, too, wanted the war to be over. That doesn't mean that they had lost faith in their particular cause. And I think equating one with the other is where some historians have, um, have come up short, that if we look at, especially among middle and upper class women, that, and I say that because those are the people that we have the writings from, you find that their devotion continues. Throughout April of 65 and, and throughout, actually, the remainder of the century. And, and uh, that's a story we'll touch on next. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back and talk about uh, ladies' memorial associations and the, the uh, efforts of, of former Confederate women after the war. We're talking today with uh, Dr. Caroline Janey of Purdue University. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are a defeated Confederate in 1865 or 1866, how can you show pride in the cause for which you fought without being accused of treason? Some people figured out a way to do that. We'll find out how when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure 1-800-BE-READY that's 
3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Caroline Janey, author of Burying the Dead But Not the Past, Ladies' Memorial Associations and the Lost Cause. It's a book that looks at the associations of women formed in the Confederacy, uh, the former Confederacy, just after the Civil War and on through the 19th century. Uh, we were talking in our first segment about uh, how women organized during the war within the Confederacy to support it. Uh, the first chapter of this uh, very interesting book talks about uh, such uh, organizations as, as the Gunboat Association in Richmond, where women got together to raise funds to build a uh, boat to defend the James River. Now, uh, uh, Carrie, you and I were discussing how that uh, contradicts to some extent the argument uh, that has been made by some uh, historians that Confederate women lost their uh, nationalism or lost their faith in the cause. Uh, but your your argument here is that that, that did not happen. And indeed, uh, uh, apparently these first memorial associations sprang up uh, immediately after the war, that the, the, these were women who were continuing to be act, Confederate activists, one could say, uh, even after the war ended. Absolutely. And by immediately after the war, um, in Winchester, Virginia in particular, it starts in May of 1865, so less than a month after Lee has surrendered his army. And there's still Confederate troops in the field at this point. You still have Kirby Smith and others um, in the um, Western Theater that are, that are still in the field. So most most of them organize the spring of 1866, but in the case of Winchester, as I mentioned, it is immediately afterward. And it's a direct correlation between the women who had worked in soldiers' aid societies or in hospitals in Lynchburg, for uh, example. It's the women who organized the, the hospital association, the ladies' hospital association in that city, who immediately direct their efforts toward providing what they called proper burials for Confederate soldiers. Now, that obviously would be an overwhelming issue, a need there. You've got Confederate soldiers buried in battlefields and unmarked graves, presumably, all over the South. Right. Uh, so so uh, one of your points is that the Confederate government uh, no longer exists. They couldn't do that. Right. Uh, but the women didn't themselves go out and, and dig up these, these corpses and, and move them around, did they? No, not at all. These are middle and upper class women, overwhelmingly middle and upper class women, who have the time and resources to engage in these sorts of activities. And I should back up and say that the part of the, not part, but the primary impetus behind this was the fact that the United States Burial Corps, the United States government, had begun burying the federal dead in the aftermath of the war. The northern public was calling for the, the government to do something about all of the mass and unidentified graves, federal graves, throughout the South, where, of course, most of the fighting had occurred and therefore most of the uh, remains had been buried. And so by February of 1866, Congress had authorized a burial project or disinterment and reburial project. So you have the U.S. Burial Corps traveling throughout the South. It's going to places like Shiloh. It's going to Vicksburg. Uh, eventually we'll go over to Andersonville, where Clara Barton will be involved. 
But it comes to Virginia in the spring of 66, first to Richmond, looking around the battlefields there to, to identify any graves. And then the object is to create national cemeteries that resemble the cemetery created at Gettysburg and or as well as the, the national cemetery created at Arlington, where every grave is of equal importance. All the soldiers are, are going to be treated um, equally despite where they're from, despite rank and whatnot. But they explicitly ignore Confederate graves. There's never a discussion. Uh, John Neff's book, uh, Honoring the Civil War Dead, is an excellent book about, about this problem of reconciliation and, and the role that dead played in reunion and reconciliation. And one of the things that he points out is that there's never a discussion among uh, federal officials about whether or not they will rebury Confederate soldiers. They were traitors. They were rebels. Why should they be buried in these national cemeteries? But that makes former Confederates irate. They're absolutely unhinged by this. And so this is what leads the Ladies' Memorial Associations to form in May of 1866. Back to your original question, no, they're not literally out there uh, digging up the bodies. They hire men. Uh, They raise the funds, and they hire men to go out and disinter the dead. They, uh, in terms of of hands-on behavior, though, they do participate in in, uh, wreath laying or flower uh, ceremonies. They, They... uh, they decorate uh, the graves of the dead. Right, they, and they, they also they orchestrate the, the whole getting the, the bodies into the cemeteries to begin with. They're the ones who are responsible for going around to farmers, going around to landowners, and asking them to identify where graves might be on farmland. They put um, ledgers in stores asking people to fill out where any uh, remains might be. Then they collect the funds not only to provide for the disinterment of the the remains, but also to purchase the cemeteries. Once the cemeteries have been created, once the reinterments have taken place, then the ladies decided that they wanted to have some sort of annual tradition of marking, of honoring their Confederate dead. And so this is where the practice of Memorial Day comes about in the spring of 1866. So it's the women, along with children usually, who would gather evergreens, and other spring flowers to lay on graves of, of Confederate soldiers at their memorial days. Now, the, uh, the idea of doing this, um, to, because it's not being done by the Union government, by the, by the federal government, uh, makes sense of one uh, point that you make that I thought was very interesting, which is that most of the members, uh, certainly among the leadership of these early Ladies' Memorial Associations, were not themselves uh, married to Confederate soldiers, uh, or if they were, they were not widows. The, the soldiers were not themselves uh, killed. Right. I was very surprised when I found that. I started creating massive databases for all of the, the ladies that I looked at um, for each individual member and tracing out you know, who her family was, whether she had father, husband, brother who participated in the war. And I was very surprised to find that most of these women did not lose their husbands, fathers, brothers to the war. These were not widows. These were not orphans. So their mourning was not of a personal nature. They weren't out there mourning the loss of their particular loved ones. But even so, I think we need to keep in mind that they were mourning. They were absolutely mourning the loss of their Confederate nation, 
which they had believed would would succeed, would be an independent nation. Well, you started earlier talking about how political, uh, you know, they they would not acknowledge uh, that what they're doing is political, but this really brings home that it is political rather than personal uh, for these women. Right. Now, for the women to, on the Memorial Day or Decoration Day that they they designate in the different associations, uh, you said pick different days, uh, in the spring of 1866, they they go to these uh, uh, cemeteries. They bring flowers. You said children are often involved. Uh, now the the thinking behind that. Well, I don't know if it's thinking or if it just happened. I guess that's a good question. By having women and children do this, they immunize themselves from federal criticism uh, to some degree because who can. Uh, under 19th century uh, codes of gender behavior, object to women mourning the loss of men. Right, and part of this is simply an extension of 19th century Victorian mourning culture to begin with. Women had been the primary um, actors in mourning rituals. They were the ones who were supposed to uh, be in mourning garb, all of those uh, traditions that were, were part of Victorian culture. So it's not surprising that women are seen to be especially well-suited for mourning practices. What is interesting, though, is that in the context of these Confederate Memorial Days, it's not just people showing up at cemeteries and and laying flowers or laying wreaths on the graves of soldiers. In all of these communities, and they all pick different days in the, the, the springtime to recognize, but they generally follow the same pattern. There's some sort of procession that will begin in the town, perhaps at... A, a church in town or maybe the courthouse square will march to the cemetery, and these processions tended to include veterans. Now, they weren't allowed to wear any insignia, but many of them were still donning their gray or butternut uh, jackets. They would march to the cemetery. There, the ladies either might have laid flowers earlier or would do so at that point, but then there would be a speaker, and the speakers had been selected by the ladies. And these speakers were inevitably, they were almost always former Confederate officers or former Confederate office holders during the war. And they are very careful, both the speakers and newspaper accounts leading up to Memorial Day and following Memorial Day, to discuss the fact that this has all been planned by women. They say over and over again that these were the spontaneous tributes of mothers and daughters in mourning. Well, they were hardly spontaneous tributes when they'd been planned for nearly a year. But these occasions allowed the opportunity for thousands of ex-Confederates to gather in what looked like, had to have looked like a military parade, march to a cemetery, and then have a former Confederate leader not talk about the dead, not talk about reconciliation or reunion, but to... um, unleash on the federal government about the issues of Reconstruction. So this really is a, a remarkable uh, event. The description you give of uh, the uh, the reburial of Turner Ashby in October 1866, uh, you said there were, there were some tens of thousands of people right, right. attending this, uh, soldiers in, in uniform with the buttons and insignia removed, but still they're all in the same color. They look like soldiers. Uh it, it's uh, a military parade of the defeated, uh, unrepentant, and, and uh, doing everything but still fighting. It really is a remarkable spectacle, but because uh, the newspapers say so carefully this is all done by women, uh, 
It's well, almost as if the women are being used as, as human shields in a political sense. Well, that's uh, one way of looking at it. But my perspective, having you know, read the minutes of these ladies and read their letters, is that they are clearly they're they're on board with this. I don't think they are being used by the men. They recognize that this is a way. It's not the men so much hiding behind their skirts as both of them acknowledging that if they want to honor the dead, then this is something, um, this, this is the appropriate course to take to do so. Yeah, I, I, I did. My words may not have expressed quite what I was thinking. I'm not implying that the the women were not the active agents doing it, mm-hmm. uh, but the effect is is that the the North uh, can't. Uh, you, you couldn't do it without the women. If exactly. the men simply marched, exactly. it would be the government would come in and break it up. Right, and there's a great quote from a. Um, um, a person in 1867, when there has been a crackdown by 1867, um, a person who is witnessing the celebration in Richmond in 1867, and he says something to the effect of, um, if, um, if it hadn't been under the control of the ladies, then a thousand bayonets would have bristled to prevent the celebration. So people recognize that it's because of women that the phrase, the tender hand of woman, is used over and over again. Politicians will um, comment that these women are not political, that they have no political leanings, that they're not interested in the, the writings of Monroe or of, of Jefferson. But the fact that they do so suggests to me that they recognize how very dangerous, how very political these women's actions are. And the North recognizes this as well. I mean, Northern uh, congressmen are very angered. Northern newspapers are very angered. They see these women's activities as treasonable uh, activities. They say that the women are continuing to inculcate hatred of the North, that they're trying to um, gather up uh, more and more recruits against Northern politicians and against Republicans in particular. So white Southerners, ex-Confederates, do use women as a shield, but Northerners, they they get it to some degree. By the end of 1866, by the fall of 1866, there is a crackdown on this behavior, and um, many of these groups are are sanctioned. They're not allowed to participate, not allowed to have uh, some of the same sorts of affairs once military reconstruction Um, once so-called radical reconstruction starts in March of 1867, many of these activities are curtailed by the federal officials. uh, You mentioned again with the the Ashby funeral, the local U.S. burial corps did not uh, lower its flag uh, uh, to salute that funeral. Uh, uh, You say the Northern View, why this this is a rebel who fought against uh, our country, and and, uh, we we don't owe him that. Uh, So there's certainly a recognition there of what's going on on both sides at that moment. By 1870, uh, there's sort of a sea change. In 1870, uh, Virginia is readmitted to the Union in in one sense, Reconstruction ends in, in Virginia. Uh, but it, you, you say that at this point, uh, men become more active in the memorial movement. How does that come about? Primarily driven by the death of Lee. I mean, the fact that Reconstruction is essentially over as of January of 1870 certainly helps. But when Lee passes away in October 
1870. This is the real rallying cry, especially for people like Jubal Early, who see that it's really, who believe, rather, that it's up to men. It's up specifically to men who fought under Lee to commemorate him. So now that you no longer have Reconstruction or the threats of Reconstruction, if you will, holding back Confederate men, there's no longer the the idea that they will be held accountable or charged with treason for their activities. Former soldiers, um, former soldiers particularly of the Army of Northern Virginia, gather around and try to um, set up efforts to commemorate, to uh, erect a statue to Lee. So this is all beginning in October of 1870. The uh, Association of the Army of Northern Virginia is formed by early. There's actually two competing organizations um, among men that form, but, but soon Early's group wins out. You also have the Southern Historical Society that emerges during these years. So in other words, they're um, motivated by the feeling that they need to honor their their chieftain, but they also no longer are held back by the strictures of Reconstruction. So, in in in, uh, in the sense I'm looking at my notes, I, I wrote the uh, the Confederate veterans are coming out of the closet, uh, uh, so to speak, right, uh, right. in 1870 uh, under the the aegis of the Lee funeral, the Lee uh, memorialization. But while there are two groups of men who contest over this. Uh, the real contest is is a new one now that right. uh, between men and women. Right. Uh, that's a fascinating story. How how did that work out? Yeah, it, early in particular, he's really the the dominating personality when it comes to the men's sides of the organize, organizations here. Really thinks that it's up to men, and he does not want women to take the lead anymore. The women, however, especially led by women like Sarah Randolph, who happens to be the great granddaughter of Thomas Jefferson. They're adamant that they have been successful up to this point, that they have been responsible for reburying almost 72,000 among the the organizations that I looked at, the uh, five different cities I looked at in Virginia. Uh, They've been responsible for creating Memorial Day. They've been incredibly successful at this, and they do not want to let go of this. They feel that it is their right and their duty to continue to organize, to orchestrate. They don't have a problem with men being involved. In fact, they want men to be involved, but they do have a problem with men trying to shove them to the side. So there's a a real gender dispute that erupts in the 1870s. It also comes into play over a battle about uh, reburying dead from Gettysburg, the women from Hollywood Memorial Association, which is one of the Richmond groups, don't live up to their end of the bargain in terms they never quite pay off uh, Dr. Weaver, who had done the disinterments from Gettysburg, and men get involved and tell them that they need to, to pay, and they try to pay off the debt. So there's a real clash between um, men and women during the 1870s over who has control, who should have control over Confederate memory. Uh, we're going to stop, uh, take another short break, and talk more about the, the challenges that the Ladies' Memorial Associations uh, face uh, in the 1870s, 1880s, and on to the 1890s. We'll do that when we come back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. 
Confederate Ladies Memorial Associations survived the hostility of occupying Union troops in the 1860s and the rivalry of male memorial groups in the 1870s, but they finally found an opponent they couldn't defeat. Who was that? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. My husband and I, we met at a strip mall dance. He was 20, I was 17. It was a beautiful strip mall built by my grandfather after he'd emigrated from Holland to be a farmer. Anyway, when I saw my husband at that dance, I realized I'd seen him before at a big rally at the highway on-ramp. For all the men who had enlisted, he was going to war. Two weeks later, he left for basic training. Oh, I cried my eyes out that day. His train left the car dealership. But we rode to each other every day. I rode my bike the ten miles to the high rise each morning, just so I could meet the mail when it got there. Four years later, he came home to me, and we married at the little convenience store downtown. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Carrie Janey, author of Burying the Dead But Not the Past, Ladies Memorial Associations and the Lost Cause. In our last segment, we were discussing how the Ladies Memorial Associations that formed in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War within literally uh, weeks uh, were responsible for uh, decorating the graves of Confederate dead, identifying uh, bodies, bringing them back to uh, southern cemeteries, and uh, in a broader sense, creating uh, a focus for, for lost cause uh, sentiment, uh, creating uh, places and events where white southerners could celebrate their efforts in the Civil War rather, rather than hide their continuing uh, uh, the partisanship from from occupying Union troops or uh, from the Northern public generally, but by the 1870s, uh, male uh, white Southerners are also engaged in this, uh, and we were discussing how Jubal Early and his uh, efforts to memorialize Robert E. Lee clash with those of the Ladies Memorial Associations. Uh, Carrie, in 1886, you, you talk about the uh, effort to retake Memorial Day. The, the Hollywood Memorial Association from Richmond uh, strikes directly back at, at Early's group and, and tries to reclaim that holiday for themselves. Did that work for them? Well, it, it does to some extent, yes. I mean, the women are glad that the groups such as the Lee Camp, the uh, other Confederate veterans organizations are starting to organize, but they're adamant, especially that Memorial Day remains something that they control. They don't don't have a problem celebrating it with men. 
they don't have a problem even celebrating it with, well, to some extent, the women are, are less about reconciliation than the Confederate veterans, but they can in some ways even acknowledge what they called Union Memorial Day. But they always believe that Confederate Memorial Day and, to a lesser extent, the creation, the erection of monuments was something that belonged in their sphere, in their domain. Now, reconciliation is uh, a topic that's been a lot written about. Uh, David uh, Blight's book, of course, in recent reunion, really uh, redefines the argument about how national reconciliation between North and South uh, is based on a forgetting of the, the political principles that underlay the war in the first place. The Ladies' Memorial Associations are not big on reconciliation, uh, no. in, in contrast to, as you say, even the veterans themselves. The United Confederate Veterans are formed in the uh, 1880s and, and become big in the 1890s, but they, uh, they're willing to, to form joint uh, encampments with Union veterans. Ladies, not so much. Right, and this is actually the subject of my current book project, is looking uh. at reconciliation and the difference between what reunion and reconciliation, what those two things meant to people in the 19th century. And what, what, what is the difference? Uh, what is not, the difference? Not to, not to read your whole book, but... No, no. Um, uh, what, what are you finding? What, what, what's the gist? Reunion is the political reunification of the nation. It's literally bringing the nation back together, ending the rebellion. So if we understand that northern soldiers fought for union in the first place then we can understand that what they were fighting for was reunion, of reuniting, literally reuniting the nation. Reconciliation is more about the hearts and minds and about the notion that you can, can come together and not talk about the issues. One of, and we don't have to go too far in this direction, but one of my problems with some of the scholarship about reconciliation is that, is the emphasis, rather, on the notion that the, the causes were forgotten, that, that the two sides could come together, that Union and Confederate veterans could come together and agree to not talk about the causes. That's true. They didn't talk about the causes, but they were still very adamant that their cause was the right cause. Union soldiers especially um, believed that the Confederate cause was a wrong cause. And when they weren't together with Confederate veterans at encampments, they were... Um, just, I hate to keep using the word adamant, but that's what keeps coming to mind, that their cause was, in fact, the morally correct cause. And so I, I think we need to unpack what these terms mean a little bit more. But there is a gendered component to that, and that is that women, both northern women and southern women, fail to uh, find the need for reconciliation. They also fail to find common bonds with each other in the way that that men might reminisce about the hardships of camp life and the atrocities of the battlefield experience, but northern women and, and southern women, Confederate women, don't have those same op overlapping um, experiences. You don't see the Women's Relief Corps and Ladies' Memorial Association or later the United Daughters of the Confederacy coming together for any sort of encampment where they can talk about what it meant to be on the home front or they can talk about what it meant to be mothers having sons go off to war, in part because they saw each other's experiences as so completely different from their own. Confederate women in particular felt like northern women hadn't experienced the war at all. 
No, this would get into you know, extremely deep waters to to raise this. But is this uh, this gendered experience entirely driven by this northern? Uh, well, that's not a good way to ask it. What I, what I was thinking as you say, say this is my own experience coaching the Greenville Stars U14 girls soccer team and the way in which they greet their opponents after the game in the ritual handshake line. Mm-hmm. And the the difference uh, and, and the lack of any true appreciation for the other team at that point, they still hate them. Uh, having won or lost, they right. have hatred or contempt for their opponent when the game's over. They shake hands because that's what the league requires teams to do. Uh, boys teams that I've seen or that I participated in, there is a sense after the game, good game, man, you really, one really means it. Uh, no, no, that, that, that's a trivial comparison by, by far. But is there something there where the, the men having fought against one another do form these bonds? Uh, the, the, the women don't. Uh, they don't reconcile in the same way. Right. Uh, I, I, it's a fascinating subject. Uh, well, I'm a little leery of um, going beyond... Uh, I mean, certainly there isn't an emotional... Uh, construct. There's our gender constructs about the appropriate behavior and the appropriate response, and what is suitable um, for women. The behaviors that they exhibit, as well as men, and, and more than likely, I'm, I'm sure someone could explain that maybe there are biological issues there too. What I'm but, but that's a deep water. I'm not prepared yeah, to get into. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel comfortable at all. Um, no, me neither. <laughs> going there. Uh. But what I think it is fair to say is that battlefield experience certainly affected the way in which uh, participants of the war, both home front and um, soldiers, remembered the war and the way in which they could think about their former foes. And within that, there's a whole other level that Confederate women, and by the time we get to the 1880s and 90s, we're often talking about uh, the children of children who have come of age during Reconstruction in particular, that their understanding of what the war meant to people on the home front, to women in particular on the home front, was strikingly different. And so they see themselves as participants of the war. There's also a striking difference in the way that Confederate veterans and Union veterans talk about their respective women. Confederate veterans tend to uh, want to commemorate women. They want to erect monuments in their honor. They are, are very interested in at speeches, talking about how women contributed to the war effort, you, it's very, very rare that you find the same sort of attitudes among Union veterans. And so there's a, just a completely different notion of what battlefield experience and what war experience meant for uh, Northern and Southern women. You, you don't find any physical memorials, monuments to, to Northern women, whereas you do find them to Southern women. There are a handful, but those uh, memorials to Northern women are per- specifically to nurses. Mm-hmm. They're not to kind of women on the home front more generally the way there are for uh, Confederate women such as South Carolina, the State House, and, and things of that nature. Now, I said in the, during the break that there was one opponent the Ladies Memorial Association finally couldn't overcome. Right. Uh, and that brings us to the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, now we had a, a generational component. Right. Uh, how did how did that relationship work out? Well, the UDC doesn't organize until 1894. 
and they are overwhelmingly popular right off the bat. I mean, they are able to generate, um, within six years, they're able to claim 20,000 members. They're also a national organization where the Ladies Memorial Association had been local groups. Each city community had their own uh, Ladies Association, and there was no national hierarchy as such. But the UDC is just overwhelmingly popular. Women flock to this organization. They flock to it because they are going to other organizations at the same time, but the UDC is also, in many respects, seen as more cutting edge, doing many of the same things, almost all of the same things that ladies, the Ladies Memorial Associations were doing, but it was simply perceived as being a more youthful, more um, vigorous organization. And we probably don't have time to, to get into this conversation, but it also has a component in terms of race and a real emphasis on um, the faithful slave notion. There's, a, there's an element of uh, white supremacy that, that runs through the UDC that the Ladies Memorial Association simply took for granted. They didn't feel the same need to express it that the UDC did coming about in the 1890s when you have uh, segregation, when you have Plessy v. Ferguson, and all of these other um, race issues coming to the forefront. This is an argument uh, David Donald made uh, many years ago in his short uh, essay on the politics of Reconstruction that that it largely is generational in the 1890s that that, that there's a, a sense where the Ladies Memorial Association generation took it for granted that the white supremacy was a given. Right. Uh, that had been challenged uh, through Reconstruction, and the, the 1890s generation feels it must reinforce this. Uh, through the laws, uh, uh, but also through organizations like the UDC teaching. Uh, and, and you have the, uh, the educational component. Uh, it's the UDC that, that insists on textbooks telling right. the, the correct story of the war. Right. And within that, slavery always plays a prominent role, the role of slavery and the so-called appropriate place for African Americans in the community is always something that is an underlying theme in UDC textbooks for the textbooks they endorse, rather. Well, do the Ladies Memorial... How do the Ladies Memorial Associations disappear, finally? They, their members, they simply couldn't get more members to come in, and their members, uh, the more youthful members, joined the UDC, and the UDC eclipses them by 1915. And, and uh, with that, uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, as always happens uh, too soon on the show. Uh, but I want to thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, I learned thank you. A lot. And listeners, you'll want to take a look at Burying the Dead But Not the Past, Ladies Memorial Associations, and the Lost Cause. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.